Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. You're listening to the Naked Bible Podcast. To support this podcast, go to nakedbiblepodcast.com and click on the support link in the upper right-hand corner. If you're new to the podcast and Dr. Hyde's approach to the Bible, click on New Start Here at nakedbiblepodcast.com. Welcome to the Naked Bible Podcast, episode 136, Ezekiel, chapters 21 and 22. I'm the layman, Trey Strickland, and he's the scholar, Dr. Michael Heiser. Hey, Mike, how are you doing? What's new? <laughs> uh, uh, the playoffs is new. You Congratulations. You made the playoffs in our fantasy football league. Well, I'm embarrassed to say I didn't uh, even look. I thought we had another week. <laughs> by the skin of your teeth? Yeah. No, you made it in. I think you're playing your brother first round. So Okay. You need All to. Right, well, I got yeah, to look at that then. You do need to look at that. Yeah, I just thought there was another week to determine that status, but uh, I'll take it. Uh-oh. I'll take well, limping I, in. I, I should not have said anything. Your brother is going to be mad at me if I... Uh, should have kept my mouth shut. And then, well, it doesn't really change the rosters, does it? <laughs> well, I don't know. Maybe you got somebody sitting out. I don't know. I don't know. I probably need more help than that. <laughs> anyway, at least I'm in, you know, now I can, now I can, uh, start my run, I guess. I think we may play season. each other next. Yeah. I don't know if you win. I think we play each other next. So hopefully well, can... you won't start your run until next year. <laughs> yeah. I hear you. Well, I'm just, I'm a little surprised that I got in with, you know, again, one week earlier and I thought it was going to be determined, but I'll take it. Nah. Well, there you Not go. Not bad. There you go. Well, we've got uh, two chapters, as you mentioned, 21 and 22. Uh, so we want to jump in here. We, we need to start off by saying that chapter 21 is more or less framed by the last five verses of chapter 20. So I'm going to start by reading those last five verses of Ezekiel 20. And that'll, again, make apparent sort of this the segue into chapter 21. So in Ezekiel 20, verse 45 is where we're going to start. We read this. And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, set your face toward the southland. Preach against the south and prophesy against the forest land in the Negev. Say to the forest of the Negev, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I will kindle a fire in you. And it shall devour every green tree in you and every dry tree. The blazing flame shall not be quenched, and all faces from south to north shall be scorched by it. All flesh shall see that I, the Lord, have kindled it. It shall not be quenched. And then in the last verse, Ezekiel sort of complains. He says, Then I said, Ah, Lord God, they are saying of me, Is he not a maker of parables? Now, that last verse and that statement by Ezekiel is is sort of the key to get us into chapter 21, because what you have here in chapter 20, verses 45 through 48, is Ezekiel, again, does what he's told. He he prophesies this. And then apparently, either the people that heard this message just didn't get it, or they just sort of refused to understand the point of verses 45 through 48. And so— they accuse Ezekiel of just making up parables, like, you know, 
you're, you're talking a lot of gibberish here. We can't understand it. So that the, the misunderstanding or the lack of connection is either genuine or they're just saying that to sort of be evasive, you know, sort of avoid the implications of what he's saying. So, you know, it's not really clear which is which, and it's probably a little bit of both, uh, you know, said in, in, in the real context of things. But that gets us into chapter 21, because what happens in chapter 21 is right after Ezekiel says, hey, they're, they're just calling me this, this kind of babbler, you know, maker of parables. God says, okay, let's try to make it clearer. And so in chapter 21, we get four oracles or four messages in this chapter. There's four distinct units. And in these four messages, the fire of the end of, of chapter 20, the fire against the Negev becomes a sword directed against Judah and Jerusalem. So you say, well, why would you know chapter 20 you know, talk about the Negev and the fi- this fire in the south? Well, we're going to find out a little bit about that as, as we proceed, because Nebuchadnezzar is actually going to sort of invade the area from two fronts, one in the north, one in the south. And this reference here in chapter 20 at the end of it is really about getting attacked or assaulted from the south. That's where the Negev is. And so it has coherence between the end of chapter 20 and chapter 21. But again, the way it ends is Ezekiel complaining, hey, they're just saying they're not getting it. And so God says in verse 20, all right, let's try to make it clear. So let's jump into chapter 21. You get the first of four, these four oracles. There's, there's going to be, in the first seven verses, you've got a sword. Again, the sword sort of replaces the fire of, of the end of chapter 20. There's a sword drawn and poised to attack Judah and Jerusalem. Then in verses 8 to 17, God tells Ezekiel to start talking about the sword being sharpened. You know, again, like sort of prepared to, you know, for the assault, you know, for, for slaying, you know, God's enemies. God's people, really, again, who are apostates. Verse or this, the third um, message is the sword again directed toward Jerusalem, again in a, in, in a little bit more of a violent way. And then, lastly, there's the sword directed against Ammon, and Ammon is in the south. Uh, again, so you, you get these four, basically, mini messages, these oracles. So the first one here, let's begin in, in verse one. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, set your face toward Jerusalem. And preach against the sanctuaries. Now, I'm going to stop there already because it, it, it might sound odd to the ear that God is telling Ezekiel to set his face toward Jerusalem and preach against the sanctuaries, plural. And you say, well, what, what's this thing with sanctuaries, plural? Is it, there's only one temple there. There's only one temple precinct. So why is it plural? And the answer to this is actually a, a text critical issue. The Masoretic text uh, has... A should be translated as a plural has mikdashim, mikdashim, excuse me, and that is just your standard normal Hebrew plural. It ends with im. Whereas other, there are some Hebrew manuscripts that don't have that plural, and the Septuagint translates it, you know, their holy places. So kind of, you know, also conveying a plural idea. But then some manuscripts don't. If you know a little Hebrew, and I'm not going to belabor this because most listeners are not going to, if you look at the ending of the Masoretic text, it, it is apparently a misspelling not that uh, shouldn't it should not read the sanctuaries. It should read their sanctuary singular. 
And the way you get to that is the ending, the IM ending. You take out the I or the, the Y consonant, which is what, again, a few manuscripts actually have, uh, you know, something that, that makes a little bit more sense. So this is something that's resolvable. I brought it up because it's a good illustration of how something that the Masoretic text has doesn't really make sense, but the fix is easy. Again, a, a scribe at some point thought that the M on the end was a plural and stuck a Y in there and made it plural. When you have a singular noun with an M in the ending, and that, that M is a suffix, and it means their sanctuary, singular. So verse 1 and verse 2 are really directed against the temple. Again, just like we'd expect, it's not plural. There's not more than one temple there. So that, that's an easy fix, an easy example. And to continue on, God says, prophesy against the land of Israel. Say to the land of Israel, thus says the Lord, behold, I'm against you. And will draw my sword from its sheath and will cut off from you both righteous and wicked. And here we have a reference to the, the righteous even, again, suffering the effect of, of what's going to be Nebuchadnezzar's, Nebuchadnezzar's invasion. Verse 4, because I will cut off from you both righteous and wicked, therefore my sword shall be drawn from its sheath against all flesh from south to north. Again, both sort of sides, north and south, both areas that Nebuchadnezzar, uh, again, is going to invade from. It's going to be a full-out assault from both directions. Verse 5, And all flesh shall know that I am the Lord. I have drawn my sword from its sheath, and it shall, be not, it shall not be sheathed again. So at the end of you know, chapter 20, we had a reference to the Negev and the fire that's going to be put in you and from the south. And Again, that's all the Negev indicates, the south, the southern region. And again, that, that's, that's referring to one uh, point of entry that the Babylonians are going to use. And the people either didn't make didn't make sense of it, or again tried to deny it. Their you know, self denial, and God says, "Okay, well, let's make the language more plain. Let's talk about swords, and let's talk about Jerusalem." Okay, that that makes it easy for you. But here again, we get the reference to both north and south. So this is pretty self-explanatory. When we hit verse six again to finish up with the first oracle, he says, "God says, as for you, son of man, groan with breaking heart and bitter grief." Grown before their eyes. So God says, okay, after you tell them this, act like you're in pain. Okay, act like you're in pain or you're in mourning or, or something. You know, you're troubled. And verse 7, and when they say to you, why do you groan? You shall say, because of the news that is coming. Every heart will melt and all hands will be feeble. Every spirit will faint and all knees will be weak as water. Behold, it is coming and it will be fulfilled, declares the Lord God. So the reason why he's supposed to act this way and when people ask him is because I know what's coming. And you're going to hear the news soon of what I just described. You know, Jerusalem's destruction, destruction of the temple, you know, against my sanctuary, against, you know, your sanctuary. It's all going to be gone. And I know this. I'm telling you what's coming and I know what's coming. And when it comes, this is what you're, this is the response you're going to have. Okay, you're going to be in pain. You're going to just be, you know, overtaken with grief. And so this is another one of these sign acts that Ezekiel's told to do a certain thing to illustrate for them something that, you know, is going to happen, something that in this case is impending. You get to the second little mini sermon, again, about the same thing in verses 8 to 17. So verse 8, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy and say, thus says the Lord. A sword, a sword is sharpened and also polished, sharpened for slaughter, polished to flash like lightning. 
Or shall we rejoice? You have despised the rod, my son, with everything of wood. So the sword is given to be polished that it may be grasped in the hand. It is sharpened and polished to be given into the hand of the slayer. Cry out and wail, son of man, for it is against my people. It is against all the princes of Israel. They are delivered over the sword with my people. Strike therefore upon your thigh, for it will not be a testing. What could it do if you despise the rod, declares the Lord God? Now that's the end of verse 13. So the message here, again, is pretty straightforward. God says, look, you have despised the rod. Basically, every time I've tried to chastise you, Israel, every time I've tried to warn you or inflict, you know, some sort of punishment or, or convey in some way, uh, again, that, that your behavior is self-destructive, you know, bad things are happening to you, but it's going to get a whole lot of worse. You know, we've had two prior captivities, you know, two prior waves of invasion. So God's saying, you know, I've tried, I've, I've tried to get you to repent, but you haven't listened. And so now I'm not going to come with come to you with a rod, again, you know, something of wood uh, to beat you or chastise you, you know, punish you in some way. This time it's going to be with a polished sword, okay, brand new flashing, you know, right off the shelf, you know, razor sharp sword that's going to do its job. It's going to be a whole lot worse. And we've gotten to this point because you have despised the rod. You've despised every attempt at correction. So he tells Ezekiel, Okay, you tell them this, and now you go do something else. Go out there and wail. Cry out and wail like you're being struck down with a sword, like you're under attack. Uh, you know, that sort of thing. Cry out and wail. Strike, therefore, upon your thigh. Now, this is a kind of a Middle Eastern gesture of mourning, gesture of, you know, expression of calamity. You know, again, we, there are other ones that are more familiar, you know, throwing up the hands, throwing, you know, at, you know ashes, you know, on yourself, on your top of your head, and you know, tearing the clothes and all. This is another one of those. So Ezekiel is told to act like he's under attack, you know, suffering, you know, uh, being put to death by the sword, and then mourning again because of this is this is what's coming. This is what's going to happen. He continues on with with you know what he tells Ezekiel to do, you know, again to convey the, these thoughts, the assault, and then its aftermath. He says in verse fourteen, "As for you, son of man, prophesy." Clap your hands and let the sword come down twice, yes, three times. The sword for those to be slain. It is the sword for the great slaughter which surrounds them, that their hearts may melt and many stumble. At all their gates I have given the glittering sword. In other words, there's going to be no escape. You know, there, there, There's no way to get out of the city. Ah, it is made like lightning. It is taken up for slaughter. Cut sharply to the right. Set yourself to the left wherever your face is directed. I, will, I also will clap my hands and will satisfy my fury. I, the Lord, have spoken. So this expression of clap the hands really means to bring the hands together. And we're not specifically told here, but, but in all likelihood, Ezekiel had a sword or something that looked like a sword. And you grip it with two hands. You, know, you swing it with two hands. And so, you know, clap your hands, let the sword come down twice, three times, you know, cut to the left, you know, fade to the right. You know, he's supposed to go through the... He's supposed to mime the behavior of someone killing people with a sword, again, to convey the message. And God says, this is what I'm going to do. 
I'm going to go in there with a sword. I mean, obviously he's going to use the, the Babylonians, but this is the imagery. This is the messaging. And again, we've gotten to this point because you've despised the rod of correction up to this point. You know, all these prior occasions where not only did bad things happen to you, but I sent prophets. Ezekiel's not the first, you know, attempt here to try to get you to stop, you know, worshiping other gods and clean up your act and quit being idolaters. The, the whole story, again, that we've been, we're, here we are at chapter 21. We've basically been through 20 chapters of this stuff. And, you know, this is just Ezekiel. He's not the only one, even in his own time. And he certainly, again, has been preceded by a whole line of prophets to try to get them to do the right thing, and they just don't. So God says, this is the point to which we've come. And, you know, you've really got nobody but yourself to blame. Now, the next one, we have a third, again, oracle, third mini-sermon, where the sword again is directed to Jerusalem. Verse 18, it starts, The word of the Lord came to me again. As for you, son of man, mark two ways for the sword of the king of Babylon to come. Both of them shall come from the same land and, they, and make a signpost. Make it at the head of the way to a city. Mark a way for the sword to come to Rabbah of the Ammonites and to Judah into Jerusalem, the fortified. For the king of Babylon stands at the parting of the way, at the head of the two ways, to use divination. He shakes the arrows. He consults the teraphim. He looks at the liver. Into his right hand comes the divination for Jerusalem to set battering rams, to open the mouth with murder, to lift up the voice with shouting, to set battering rams against the gates, to cast up mounds, to build siege towers. But to them, in other words, to the, to the people who are going to hear you say this, to the Israelites, this will seem, you know, it will seem like false divination. They have sworn Solomos, but he brings their guilt to remembrance that they may be taken. Now, again, to unwrap this a little bit, what Ezekiel is told to do is essentially, hey, make a little map, you know, make a little schematic here for Nebuchadnezzar. And, you know, it's, it's not like it's going to be delivered, but again, the imagery is that God is going to show Nebuchadnezzar how to attack the city. So, you know, make a little schematic here, a little model or whatever it is, and mark two ways for him to come in an, an attack. You know, we'll, we'll make it easy for him because right now, you know, he's, He's kind of trying to decide, you know, well, what, what, you know, how should I approach the problem here? How should I attack? And, and he's using divination. And, and he, you know, we got a, a few, you know, methods of divination here. Um, you know, the, the whole um, shaking the arrows, consulting the teraphim, looking at the liver, uh, all that sort of stuff. Because he, he's Nebuchadnezzar, like, you know, most Babylonian or, you know, other pagan kings are going to do. They're going to consult the gods. What should I do? And God says, let's make it easy for him. Okay, I'll I'll tell him how to do this. And, and Ezekiel, you're my messenger to the fact that that I'm going to, you know, make the invasion plans as successful as possible or as easy as possible. So again, it shows you know God's you know attitude toward the whole thing. You know, the, He is using Nebuchadnezzar to punish the people. You know, back in in Jerusalem. Now Walton has a, a brief comment here. Uh, he says, according to verse 20, Nebuchadnezzar hesitated at Damascus, whether to attack Rabbah of the Ammonites or Jerusalem and Judah. As it was customary in war campaigns, he resolved the issue by having a, re a recourse to divination. Again, he could choose either way. And again, you know, it, one's north, one's south. What does it matter? Um, but again, this is the whole point. You know, Nebuchadnezzar trying to plot out a strategy and Jerusalem is going to be the victim of it, you know, in, in any respect. As far as the methods of divination, uh, just a, a few comments on that. Taylor has a little, a little section here. 
He says three methods of divination are described. The first is shaking the arrows, a technique called bellomancy. In this, arrows were marked with names of people or places and then shaken up in a quiver. And then one was drawn out as in drawing lots. It's just, in this case, you're drawing arrows. The second method is consultation of the teraphim. These were small images of household or ancestral gods, the possession of which played an important part in matters of legal inheritance. And he references Genesis 31 here. They were sometimes used idolatrously or for necromancy and were among the abominations removed by Josiah in 2 Kings 23, verse 24. What they look like or how they were consulted, we do not know. If they were figurines of ancestors, they would presumably be used as mediums or by mediums for obtaining oracles from the departed. I'll, I'll just stop there. We've talked on a couple of occasions about the teraphim before, um, you know, real briefly. They, these are apparently uh, humanoid figurines, at least either of, of a whole human figure, probably not to scale, or maybe the head and the, and the shoulders or something like that, because you know we see them. You know, show up in different places. Now he references Genesis 31, the, the the Jacob and Rachel situation where she ha, is sitting on the teraphim, and you know she says, "I'm having my period. I can't move from the tent." When when people are trying to investigate, you know, who who brought other gods, you know, along, and so on and so forth. So they could be small, but then you get the incident with David and and his wife uh, Michal, Michael. Uh, where she puts a teraphim in his bed, and and the, the men of Saul who come to attack him, uh, at least temporarily, think it's him uh, in the bed, and so they attack. But of course, it's not him. So it might have been something bigger, or maybe you know, again, maybe just the, the head and the shoulders, you know, kind of thing, where where it looks like a person. We don't really know, you know, like Taylor says, completely for sure. We've talked about how teraphim might be used uh, both. Negatively, and then sort of, you know, neutrally. You know, we we do things like this now, even though we don't worship. Uh, you know, we we don't use them for necromancy. You know, to to consult our our dead family members, our dead ancestors, for information from the other side. That that's really the point of violation. How these things are used. Now we use things like pictures. We have pictures of our deceased loved ones sitting around the house. Well, okay, that's you know to remind us of them. And teraphim could quite conceivably have been the Polaroids of that day, you know, images of your departed ancestor. You have them in the house because you not only want to be reminded of them, but you're, in a sense, you think that they're still there with you. And, and we, you know, think like this too because we believe in a spiritual world. But where the, where the boundaries crossed is, again, using them for necromancy. You're using them in like a mediumship kind of thing where you're trying to solicit information from the other side. So that they're, they clearly, again, could... Uh, be used for something that legitimately is idolatry, but they could also again be this sort of neutral thing. It, it's not really clear, and again, it's it's probably a, a little bit of all these things, depending on what the person is thinking who might have one. But there are various episodes in the Old Testament where Josiah he he references gets rid of them, all of them, just get them out of here, because he knows the propensity of the people to use them for idolatry and for, for forbidden practices. So. You know that that's in a nutshell. That, that's what we're talking about when it comes to teraphim. So you know, here we have them brought up here. Nebuchadnezzar again consulting, you know, his dead ancestors, maybe the dead kings who've gone before him. What should I do in battle? And you know, again, this is all very familiar, for, you know, with with respect to the ancient world and 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 their view of where divine information comes from. So that's why it's mentioned. The third thing, this this examining the liver. 
uh, back to Taylor. Taylor said the third uh, method of divination is hepatoscopy, the examination of the liter- liver or the entrails of a sacrificial victim, typically an animal, obviously. This was a common feature of Babylonian divination, and it was carried over in ancient Rome as well. The interpretation of the markings on the organs was one of the skills in which ancient Near Eastern soothsayers were instructed. Now, there are a number of clay models of livers and other body parts that have survived and have been unearthed by archaeologists. And if, if you look at them, some of them are divided up into quadrants, and there's little marks on them, you know, might, might be a little symbol or something. So that was, again, sort of a, a template, a cheat sheet, <laughs> the liver cheat sheet, you know, as to, well, if it's, if it's marked in this certain place, it means this. If it's got a blemish over here and maybe one over there, well, then it means that. And, and, and so there was this whole system of how to, quote, unquote, read the entrails or read, uh, again, a, a liver. Then another term you might see with this is extispacy which is a more general term, you know, examination of the entrails, the in, you know, internal organs and, and whatnot. But this is what they're doing. They, again, they had a whole system of interpretation that if you were, uh, again, someone trained in Babylon you know, to, to do this sort of stuff, this was your duty as a, as a wise man or you know, you know, something, you know, one of the, uh, you, know, you read about it in the book of Daniel, you know, this, this is part of quote-unquote Babylonian science and, and and Babylonian science is never divorced from from their theology, again, from their beliefs about the gods and how the gods communicate and so on and so forth. So this would would have been something, a method of divination that would would be common to the Babylonians, but it's common elsewhere. It's just that with respect to archaeology, we've ha- actually had a lot of these things recovered and we we, we kind of get some insight on, you know, how this was done or what they were what they thought they were doing uh, when they were reading the entrails. Now, to continue on in verse 24, okay, so he, he says, look, you know, Nebuchadnezzar is trying to figure all this stu- stuff out, like where should I build the siege tower? Where should I build the siege ramp? You know, how do I array my, my troops and so on and so forth? In verse 24, we read, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have made your guilt to be remembered, in that your transgressions are uncovered, so that in all your deeds your sins appear. Because you have come to remembrance, you shall be taken in hand. Now, the uh, you know just after the the, the the mentioning of the divination, God tells Ezekiel, look to the Israelites, to them, they're going to hear you know about Nebuchadnezzar coming. They're going to know kind of you know what he's you know he's asking his gods you know and what to do and all that. They're going to know that, but they're going to they're going to think to themselves, oh, this is false divination. We're okay. You know, and, and God's like, uh, not really. You know, he's going to show up here. He's going to show up here, and that'll bring to your remembrance why this is happening. You're guilty. You're awful. Again, you've rejected instruction. Uh, you're apostates. You're rebels, so on and so forth. And then he says here, look, when, when that happens, your transgressions are going to be uncovered. Then you'll remember all of a sudden, you know, why this is going on. All your deeds, your sins will appear because you have come to remembrance, you will be taken in hand. This is going to happen. That's the point. This is going to happen. So don't delude yourself thinking God's going to protect us, we're favored, or he's, you know, this guy's off asking gods that you know, we know aren't as good as our God. Hey, that doesn't matter anymore because you've rejected you know, the, the, the true God. And, and he's using Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon to punish you. And all of that's going to going to become crystal clear, and it should be already. But you know, either you don't 
you know, you're kind of thick-headed or you're in denial, but there's going to be no denial when it, when it comes down. So verse 25, you, O profane wicked one, prince of Israel. This is a reference to Zedekiah, and we saw this, this language earlier. In earlier chapters, the prince is referring to the kings. And when Nebuchadnezzar shows up, the, the king at, at, at that point is Zedekiah. So you, O profane wicked one, prince of Israel, whose day has come, the time of your final punishment. Thus says the Lord God, remove the turban and take off the crown. Things shall not remain as they are. Exalt that which is low and bring low which is exalted. Verse 27, a ruin, ruin, ruin. Three times it's repeated. I will make it. This also shall not be until he comes, the one to whom judgment belongs, and I will give it to him. Now again, Zedekiah gets addressed here specifically because he's, again, in, in the leadership. When Nebuchadnezzar shows up, we know that from Kings and, of course, you know, historical references outside the Bible. He's addressed to here again as a prince, not as Melech. You know, it's Nasi, not as Melech. Again, we talked about that in a previous episode about that's sort of Ezekiel's way or God giving him the language of kind of denigrating him, you know, bringing him down a peg uh, because of, of who he is and what, he, what he's been doing. Take off the turban, take off the crown. Again, the, the turban translation comes from a word that means to wind around. Uh, again, it, it's used it's used in uh, Exodus 28, uh, different places there, Exodus 29, Exodus 39, Leviticus, a few places, as something, you know, part of the high priest garment, something that's wound around them. And there's no indication here that Zedekiah had become more apostate by trying to function as a priest. There's no indication of that. But again, part of his, of what he wears is, you know, a, a turban or something, you know, wound around the head, take off the crown. Basically, you're out of a job now. I'm, I'm dethroning you, so you might as well get ready. Uh, one, one last comment. In verse 27, we have a ruin, ruin, ruin mentioned three times. This does happen in the Hebrew Bible a few times where things are mentioned three times like this and it, it it's a triple repetition it's it's a hebrew way of 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 forming a superlative and if you're not familiar with superlative we have we have you know, like like good better best we have good as an adjective better as a comparative one thing is better than another and then best is the superlative it, it it's it, you know it's a word best is a word we use to go beyond comparison to say this thing over here is is the top of the heap, you know, the mostest, you know, to use a silly English uh, equivalence here. But that's what you get here when you get a triple uh, repetition. It's a way of expressing the superlative. So a ruin, 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 I will make it. This is going to be the worst ruin that there's ever been, okay, is, is the whole point. So it, it's using the language of, of hyperbole here and, and you know, the, the superlative to make the point, you know, come home even more. Now, I bring that up because I think that's what's going on in Isaiah 6. This is a total rabbit trail here, but holy, holy, holy. There are people who say, well, that's an indication of the Trinity. Well, actually, it's just the way of, of, of expressing a superlative in Hebrew. And incidentally, the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, for that passage in, in, passage in Isaiah do not have three. They have two. Holy, holy. Um, so, we, we, you know, we don't want to hang things like Trinitarian thinking on, on the repetition of three words. Uh, if it's three there, it's not because of the Trinity. It, it's because to, to emphasize the fact that the God of Israel is is in a is in a class of holiness by Himself. There is no one as holy, no deity, no person, whatever. So that that's why they're doing that. 
last oracle in chapter 21, verses 28 through 32. Verse 28, again, this is the one where the sword is directed against Ammon. Verse 28, And you, son of man, prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord God concerning the Ammonites, concerning their reproach. Say, A sword. A sword is drawn from, for the slaughter. It is polished to consume and to flash like lightning. While they see for your false visions, while they divine lies for you, to place you on the necks of the profane wicked, whose day has come, the time of their final punishment. Return it to its sheath in the place where you were created in the land of your origin. I will judge you, and I will pour out my indignation upon you. I will blow upon you with fire of my wrath, and I will deliver you to the hands of brutish men, skillful to destroy. You shall be fuel for the fire. Your blood shall be in the midst of the land. You shall no more be remembered, for I, the Lord, have spoken. Again, so, you know, double duty again. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar is also going to take care of Ammon. That's going to provide him a, a southern uh, beachhead, if you want to use that term, or a, he's going to control the land to the south, uh, you know, which is, again, cuts off any escape from Jerusalem. You know, again, we, we, I don't want to rehearse all the things that we've we mentioned at this point, but the Ammonites again are in trouble as well. You know they're they're not going to they're not going to remain you know untouched by by the events that are to come. Uh, Taylor writes here in a passage which is very obscure but has obvious affinities with earlier parts of of the chapter, especially verses nine through seventeen. The Ammonites are represented either as again being caught up in this in a negative way, or, again, the land of Ammon being a point from which Israel, again, Jerusalem, can be attacked. So are they getting hit with a sword, or are they wielding the sword against Israel? You know, Taylor you know, suggests this may reflect the period during or after the siege of Jerusalem, when the Ammonites joined with others to take advantage of Judah's plight. Again, they're going to be quick to side with the Babylonians. This, is, this sort of harkens to the back to Obadiah when it was the Edomites, you know, who, who did this. Uh, again, the, you know, Ammon is going to be, you know, brought, they, they know who their overlord is. It's Nebuchadnezzar, obviously. They don't want this to happen to them. So, you know, there could be a sense of Ammon does the smart thing, lets Nebuchadnezzar come down there, doesn't offer opposition. Uh, again, it cuts off a southern escape, and then they join. Or again, you know, we're, we don't know, you know, completely whether Ammon is sort of subjugated as part of this process or not. But, you know, like, like Taylor says, the passage is a bit obscure, but it does make you think, you know, of Obadiah with Edom again. The, 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 little, the little kingdoms, you know, right around, you know, what's left of, of what used to be Israel. Here we're, we're dealing with Jerusalem, Judah. Uh, they're, you know, they're going to be prone to take advantage, to do what's in their own best interest. And, you know, Ammon, you know, of course is not, you know, in the friendliest terms, you know, historically, you know, with, with uh, Judah and Jerusalem. So Nebuchadnezzar is the indisputable boss, obviously. It's Babylon. But what happens here, again, is, is just not going to be good news for Israelites, regardless whether Ammon has to be coerced a little bit or, you know, put under the thumb or whatever, or whether they just freely say, hey, let us help. Let us do some killing, too. Uh, and again, probably a mix of all that. Uh, this is not going to be good news, and, and, and it's, it's included here in, in the oracle, again, to reinforce the point, you're not going to have any escape. Don't, don't think that you can head out into the desert, into the Negev, into the southern regions and get away. It's not going to happen. Uh, you're, you're going to be cut off here. So, you know, the result, again, is, is just a disaster. Now, that takes us 
into chapter 22. You know, we're at the cusp of 22. This chapter, three more oracles. Each of them begin with, the word of the Lord came to me. And in this case, we're going to have in, in these three in chapter 22, the first one in verses 2 to 16, Jerusalem's going to get condemned as a city of blood. And they're, you know, Ezekiel's going to say, this is all happening to you because of all these bad things you've done. Second oracle is going to be using the metaphor of uh, melting down silver, uh, the, the whole refiner's fire thing. We'll talk about that in a moment. And then the third article uh, really goes after the leadership in Jerusalem, again, the, the elites. Now, we've seen all these things before. The, the, the melting of the silver uh, thing is a little bit new, and we'll, we'll make some comments on that. But right on the heels of chapter 21, when, again, the message is, you're doomed, and I'm sorry that Ezekiel's first prophecy at the end of chapter 20 wasn't clear. Are these clear enough for you, these next four? You're doomed, and there's going to be no escape. And now we get a repetition again. None of this is new in Ezekiel, except, again, that the silver thing will we'll say something about that's That's kind of an extra dig the way it, it's cast. But here in chapter 22, we get a reminder again of why this is happening. It's because of what what you've been doing, what, what, what you are. Uh, so the first order, oracle, let's go to chapter 22, and we'll get into that one. The word of the Lord came to me saying, and you, son of man, will you judge? Will you judge the bloody city? Then declare to her all her abominations. You shall say, thus says the Lord God, a city that sheds blood in her midst so that her time may come and that makes idols to defile herself. That's what you are. Just what I read there. That's what you are. You have become guilty, verse 4, by the blood that you have shed and defiled by the idols that you have made. And you have brought your days near. The appointed time of your years has come. Therefore, I have made you a reproach to the nations and a mockery to all the countries. Those who are near and those who are far from you will mock you. Your name is defiled. Uh, you are full of tumult. Then in verse 6, you know, we get this whole the whole listing. Behold, the princes of Israel in you, everyone according to his power, have been bent on shedding blood. Now, you know, we could stop there and say, what's the shedding of blood? Well, it could be a reference to the, the you know, sacrificing children, because blood is connected with idols in verse 4. It could be a reference just to uh, the kind of thing that, remember Ahab with Naboth, the vineyard, had this guy killed so he could take his land. It could be that kind of abuse. Uh, it, it could be uh, shedding of blood, you know, could refer to manipulating, using soldiers to do things in, in, in conquest or in alliances with pagans that God didn't want done, and you have the the suffering of innocent, you know, the, the taking of life there that wouldn't, you know, shouldn't have happened. It, it could be all sorts of things, you know, shedding of blood, you know, winking at this or that crime, showing favoritism in the legal system. We've seen all these things. Uh, in Ezekiel and all the prophets, to be honest with you, consistently rail against this kind of thing. But it's a lawless place, is the point. It's a lawless place. And so that's why, you know, you're in trouble. And in verse 7, you, father and mother are treated with contempt in you. The sojourner suffers extortion in your midst. The fatherless and the widow are wronged in you. You have despised my holy things and profaned my Sabbaths. There are men in you who slander to shed blood, and people in you who eat on the mountains. Again, they commit lewdness in your midst. That's a reference, again, to high places, foreign high places to other deities. In you, men uncover their father's nakedness. Now, this, this could almost be a whole podcast uh, in and of itself, but 
to uncover the, the, the nakedness of the father is actually a Hebrew idiom for either taking how can I, how can I put this and be succinct here? It's not a, it's not a reference to homosexuality. It's actually a reference to things like adultery uh, and other sexual violations with, with women. And I, I know it sounds a little odd, but again, it, 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 the, the idiom is wrapped up in, uh, and you see it in Leviticus, like to uncover the nakedness of your father is defined as like, you know, having sex with your sister or your, your father's wife or something like that. It's actually a heterosexual sexual violation. But basically, I mean, you, you know, verse, verse, let's just continue. I mean, he, he, he begins to un- unwrap this a little bit more. In you men uncover your father's nakedness. In you they violate women who are unclean in their menstrual impurity. One commits abomination with his neighbor's wife. Another lewdly defiles his daughter-in-law. Another in you violates his sister, his father's daughter. In you they take bribes to shed blood and on and on and on. I mean, this is going to sound a lot like Leviticus. You remember, Ezekiel's a priest. Okay, so this is this is kind of a normal, you know, it's, it's I should say it's not an abnormal connection to be describing Jerusalem's violations in Levitical terms, you know, specific points of, of God's law being violated. So here we have a whole message. I'm not going to read it all the way to verse 16, but but this you get the idea. So chapter 21 is, hey, you're doomed and there's no escape. And chapter 22 is, let me explain again why, in case you haven't gotten it yet. You know, after over and over and over and over, uh, detailing how, you know, how wicked they are, and again, how apostate they are. Let's go through it one more time, and that's what we get in chapter twenty-two. And this first oracle is just a litany of violations of God's law from various places in the Old Testament. Uh, you know, of all sorts. You get down to verse seventeen again, the the second oracle, and this is the one that has a little bit of a difference here. This whole, uh, you know, refining silver thing. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, the house of Israel has become dross to me. You know, that, that the off scouring when you're, when you're trying to you know, heat metal, you know, to a certain temperature, it, it, it takes, it makes the impurities, you know, flow to the top and you scrape them off. Again, we're, this is a familiar metaphor for the prophets. Okay. But there, there's, there's going to be one thing that's missing from it as we keep going. So he says, son of man, the house of Israel has become dross to me. All of them are bronze and tin and iron and lead in the furnace. They are dross of silver. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have all become dross, therefore, behold, I will gather you into the midst of Jerusalem. As one gathers silver and bronze and iron and lead and tin into a furnace to blow fire on it in order to melt it. So I will gather you in my anger and my wrath, and I will put you in and melt you. I will gather you and blow on you with the fire of my wrath, and you shall be melted in the midst of it. As silver is melted in a furnace, so you shall be melted in the midst of it, and you shall know that I am the Lord. I have poured out my wrath upon you. So here we put all this stuff in. We're going to make silver, okay? Did you notice what's missing here? The process doesn't result in Jerusalem's purity. Okay, he basically says, you're all dross. You're all crap. Okay, you're you're all just this stuff that we scrape off the top and we throw away. You're the impurity. So the imagery here is not given so that, you know, to to tell Israel, look, you're going to suffer for a little bit and then you're going to come out better. You're going to come out purified. You know, I'm just I'm just doing this, you know, so that, you know, it, it'll it'll make you a more pure, you know, people for me. No, that that isn't the point. The point is here. You're all the stuff that I throw away. There is not a good outcome on the other side of this. 
you are the off scouring. You are the dross. So it's a familiar metaphor, but it, it's used in a, in a pretty dark way. Uh, you know, usually people can, can, can handle the idea, okay, I'm going to have to go through this for a little bit of time, but, but the Lord's going to use this to make me better. Well, the message here is the Lord's going to use this to throw you away. The Lord's going to use this to cast you from his sight. It, it, it's just, it's depressing, it's dark. But as we saw in the last chapter, this is the point to which we've come. And again, you should all know why. Now, the third oracle to wrap up the, the chapter here is the one that's directed against the leadership of Jerusalem. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, say to her, you are a land that is not cleansed or rained upon in the day of indignation. The conspiracy of her prophets in her midst is like a roaring lion tearing the prey. They have devoured human lives. They have taken treasure and precious things. They have made many widows in her midst. Did you notice there that there is such a thing as false prophets? Okay. People who, who claim to speak for Yahweh, but really, again, are not his. Again, there's, again, there's a whole message in that, too. Uh, just because it's, it's the same term you know, used of, of the good guys and you know, the people that are called Navi. Uh, there are plenty of Navi'im or Nevi'im in Jerusalem that God is not speaking to, but they're saying he is. And the result of what they're doing is the loss of life. It's treachery. You know, it, it's part of the picture here as to why this is happening. Verse 26, her priests have done violence to my law and have profaned my holy things. They have made no distinction between the holy and the common. Neither have they taught the difference between the unclean and the clean. They have disregarded my Sabbaths so that I am profaned among them. Her princes in her midst are like wolves tearing the prey, shedding blood, destroying lives to get dishonest gain. And her prophets have smeared whitewash for them seeing false visions and divining lies for them, saying, thus says the Lord God, when the Lord has not spoken. You know, basically, the, it, it, it's, it's a system. The, the leadership abuses the people, and the prophets cover their tracks for them, cover their butts. Oh, well, this, you know, the, the Lord's behind this. The Lord's okay with this. You know, thus says the Lord. You know, and, and, and God says, I haven't said anything. Now I'm speaking. And you're going to find out that the message is a whole lot different. So the whole, the whole rest of the chapter, again, goes through this about how the prophets are whitewashing what's going on. They're essentially, as Taylor refers to them, religious tranquilizers. I kind of like that phrase. Uh, making the people feel that things are okay or, oh, I, I guess the Lord is behind this. So here, we, you know, this is, this is what we do now. This is the way life is. This is the new normal, whatever. You know, whatever, you know, however that's going to become, you know, clear in our heads for us to think about it. This is what they're doing. They're endorsing. They're covering up. They're calling good evil and evil good. You know, that, that whole uh, axiom there. This is what, what's being described here. And the people of the land, again, at the end of the, of the, the chapter, the people of the land not only suffer, but in verse 29, the people of the land have practiced extortion and committed robbery. They have oppressed the poor and needy, and they have extorted from the sojourner without justice. They're imitating the behavior. Well, if the leadership's doing this, it must be okay for us to do it too. I mean, how familiar is that? Um, again, I'm not saying that you know America or any other country is is you know the new Israel. I don't believe that. But the analogy, I think, is coherent. 
you know, when, when the leadership is corrupt, then the people, again, begin to define morality by what the corrupt people say is legal or okay. And this is what you got. This is what, 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 you know, what the situation was uh, in Jerusalem. And how bad is it? We get to verse 30. Here's how bad it is. I sought, God says, I sought for a man among them who should build up the wall and stand in the breach before me for the land that I should not destroy it, but I found none. In other words, this place is worse than what's gone, than what went on in the past in Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember Abraham interceding, you know, with God to spare Sodom and Gomorrah. Hey, if I can find, you know, and he, he works down the number, you know, and he, and he gets to, to 10 and, and God says, okay, if, you know, if, if you find 10 righteous people in there, I won't destroy the city because, you know, you do the math. Okay. There's Lot. He's got daughters and they're, you know, maybe they're married. You know, I mean, you, you can see how Abraham's kind of doing the math in his head. Surely we can find 10. But he didn't. Here you can't even find one. Again, to, to people, to readers, to hearers who are going to know a story like Sodom and Gomorrah, you, you really can't spell it out any more clearly than this. I sought for a single person, a, a man among them who would you know, essentially do the right thing you know, so that I wouldn't destroy the city. And I couldn't find any. Therefore, verse 31, I have poured out my indignation upon them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. I have returned their way, their way upon their heads, declares the Lord God. This is deserved. And again, we've had a litany of reasons uh, given in Ezekiel. And Ezekiel is just one prophet. Okay? There's a litany of reasons why all this awful stuff is happening. And it's not something that, that makes God capricious. You know, God you know, doesn't have a bad day. God doesn't wake up and say, boy, I'm cranky. Let's go, let's go punish Jerusalem. That'll make me feel better. No, it's justified. It's justified because of all the abuses, all the crimes, all the idolatry uh, in the city. They're getting what they deserve. Unfortunately, that's just the that's that's the case. That's the way it is. And so here we are again, you know, with with Ezekiel now. You know, this we're we're very close. Chapter twenty four is going to be the chapter where we actually get the the destruction of the city, where they get the news that's that's you know talked about here. Uh, where Ezekiel's told to behave in a certain way, because this is how you're going to react when you hear the news that Jerusalem's been destroyed. We're almost there. We've got one chapter uh, before we get to that point. But it's just been one kind of spiritual beating <laughs> uh, after another uh, in the book. And and Ezekiel, again, he's, he's left the door open in other chapters. He doesn't really hear. Uh, he's left the door open at God will save a remnant. And he's mentioned that before, and God will do that. But here at the end of chapter 22, you really can't get any more hopeless than saying, if there was just one person there that I could count on to, to essentially reverse this, you know, somebody who, would, who would, I could count on to, um, to do something here, to change things. Then I would reconsider, but there aren't, there isn't anybody like that. There is, you know, yeah, there are people who are, aren't as guilty as others, and so on and so forth. We get that. And of course, there are people who wouldn't, you know, like, you know, seeing this or that happen to other people or to the Sabbath or to the temple or whatever. But there's nobody here who, you know, is going to take the personal risk to intervene and stand up for God. There just isn't. And so that's where we're at. 
again, it's it's a it's a picture that's that's dark and depressing. But that you you know you you have to be honest. You have to be honest. Ezekiel and God are telling people, this is what's in store, and this is why it's in store. Mike, teraphims aren't actual entities, are they? No, I think I think they refer to again something that would be made to either you know use in some way to contact a, a dead ancestor, a dead relative, but the object itself you know isn't uh, it's not a critter. I think okay. is what, what you'd be asking. Yeah. Right, right, right. Okay, okay. And also, can you expound real briefly uh, a little bit more about men and covering their father's nakedness? Yeah, th- this is really relevant when you get to Genesis nine uh, with this. What, what was the sin of Ham? You know, because there there are lots of different views. You know, for what happens, you know, with with uh, you know Noah, and we we know the story. I'm not going to go through the whole story, but you know, the other two sons of Noah, you know, take the cloak or the, the covering and walk backwards, put it over their their father and whatnot. And you know, what 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 is what was Ham actually guilty of? And it's a real conundrum, or at least people think it is, because Ham isn't the one who actually gets punished. Remember, Canaan is the one who's cursed. And, and a couple times in the chapter, the, the point is made that Ham is the father of Canaan. Well, this this language, the, the, the language in Genesis 9 is to uncover the nakedness of, of the father. And if you take that language and you go to Leviticus, that is a synonymous phrase for, uh, you know, what, what we have here to try to remember what the exact term was here um, to see to see or basically to see the nakedness of the father and to uncover the nakedness of the father are both idioms that mean again to defile not the person who is your father but their wife and so again this is really cutting it short it it almost deserves a whole episode but what happened with with Noah and Ham i think the best explanation based on hebrew idiom because none of these idioms are ever used of homosexual intercourse. They are only used of heterosexual uh, violations. I think that the best explanation for Ham's sin is that he is maternal incest. He violated Noah's wife, his own mother, and she got pregnant and she gave birth to Canaan. And that's why Canaan is cursed. Because when Ham does this, he's trying to to possess the the patriarchal authority. It's kind of the equivalent of of having sex with the harem. we, We talked about that a week ago too. That, that kings would do. But when you did this to your, your father's you know, spouse, you asserted your authority. I'm the leader now. And, and his brothers reject this. You know, obviously, you know, Noah, you know, is drunk. He's there in, in the tent. There's a place in the, in, the, in the text of Genesis 9 where the, the suffix on tent can and probably should be translated her tent. So it's a reference to, yeah, Noah was in there you know, might have been naked, you know, you know, maybe had, had sex with his own wife, you know, obviously that's okay. But then Ham does it too. And she gets, you know, pregnant with Canaan. That's why Canaan's cursed because it's Noah's statement that you're not taking over here. Uh, I'm going to curse the line that comes from you so that everybody knows that this is not who's going to inherit the tribe. So again, that that's a real, real fast and, and incomplete way of explaining that whole issue. But key to it is this idiom. Everywhere else you find it to either uncover the nakedness of the father or see the nakedness of the father. In the context, it always refers to heterosexual violations and not homosexual. And so if you take that back to Genesis 9, it actually can make sense not only of what happens, but why Ham isn't cursed and Canaan is. 
And of course, Ham is the father of Canaan. Again, three times in the chapter, that point is made. There must be some reason why it's being made. And if you take the maternal incest view, well, the reason is because this is the result of what Ham did. It's this kid. And unfortunately, Noah has to curse the line because of, of the way it was created, because of what was done. This is a crime. So that, that's why it's, it's, it's relevant. Uh, it's something that we're not really going to pick up on unless we sort of, you know, do, do a word study, a concatenation of all the terms involved and see, and we discover that it's idiomatic for a very, uh, a pretty specific set of violations that are heterosexual. Well, if you think it warrants a whole show, we'll put it down on our list to do. Yeah, we, we could, um, you know, that, that, again, that was the quick version of it, but we could unpack it, uh, because a lot, a lot of, I get a lot of questions, you know, on that people are familiar with the passage and it just doesn't make sense. Again, especially because Ham isn't, isn't, he's the, clearly the bad guy, but he's not the one that's cursed. Well, how is that right? Well, there is a logic to it. Yeah. I think it warrants its own show. That way people can go back and reference it in the future. So mm-hmm. uh, that'd be good. All right, okay. Mike. Well, next week, chapter 23. Yep. Chapter 23, one chapter. All right. Well, that sounds good. Alrighty then. I just want to thank everybody for listening to the Naked Bible Podcast. God bless. Thanks for listening to the Naked Bible Podcast. To support this podcast, visit www.nakedbibleblog.com. To learn more about Dr. Heiser's other websites and blogs, go to www.drmsh.com. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.